1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And then would you stand for the reading of his word. We're going to begin in verse number 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, Paul, Silas, Timothy, writing to these brethren, these Christians in this church in Thessalonica. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, and be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Now we come to what may be the most challenging commands, three of the most challenging commands in all of the Bible, grouped into the next three consecutive verses, beginning in verse 16. Rejoice evermore. There's no excuse, by the way, for not memorizing this verse. If you've been looking for a, a verse to start on in your scripture memory, may I suggest 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. In fact, I think if we worked at it, we probably could have it memorized by the end of this service today. Rejoice evermore. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. Verse 18, in everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Challenging, right? Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. This morning, we'll just look at the first. Just two words in verse 16. Rejoice evermore. Now, I need you to know up front that the length of the verse does not necessarily correspond to the length of the sermon, but it is just two verses that were two words that we're covering. Rejoice evermore. Let's pray. Our Father, we have much to rejoice about who you are that the choir just sung about. So, you're just so awesome done so much for us. We have much to rejoice about. And yet this command is so challenging to rejoice evermore, to rejoice always, to rejoice forever. Today I pray that you would help us to understand it, to believe that it's possible, and then with your help to go forward rejoicing evermore. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. The, the word rejoice, of course, means to have Joy. It's not a complicated word. It means to be glad. And I want to acknowledge today that all of us comes to church with different issues that are battling for our attention. Everybody does. Some have recently experienced illness or even loss. Some are dealing with family crises. Other people are, are excited about embarking on some new chart, a new course for their life. And, 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 and as we talk about rejoicing evermore all the time, you may be thinking that for you, that's just not possible. And the, and the place where you are today, rejoicing is just not possible. And if that's the case, then I, I think this message will be especially for you. Obviously, there are times when it's easier to have joy than at other times. 
not long ago when the St. Louis Blues won the Stanley Cup. Nobody had to remind them that they needed to get excited. Nobody had to say, now listen, in the end of the game, if you guys are on top and you win the cup, don't forget, you guys are supposed to get excited and rejoice and and scream. Nobody had to tell them that because sometimes it's just natural to rejoice. However, if there were any Christians on the Boston Bruins, which is unlikely, and I'm kidding, if if there were any Christians on the other team at the end, they would have needed a reminder As a Christian, even now, you are to rejoice. Sometimes it's easier to rejoice than at other times. In fact, if you were watching towards the end of the game, when it it became obvious with quite a bit of time left that the Blues were going to win, the guys, the Blues were on the bench just, they they, they couldn't wait to get out there and get excited, but but they had to kind of hold back their celebration until the game was over. But it's not easy for everyone the recipients of this letter from Paul in Thessalonica didn't have a lot of reason to rejoice, humanly speaking. They weren't living some fairy tale life. They were persecuted on every hand because of their belief in God, because of their outspoken belief in Him. Their loved ones were dying, as we saw in some of the previous chapters. And yet Paul says to them, rejoice evermore. If you're questioning this command, I can assure you you're not the first to do so. The Israelites, it seemed, were always finding something to complain about, even though to us looking back, it seemed like they had a lot to rejoice about. You remember Job's wife, when they lost everything, including their own children, she looked at Job and she said, why don't you just curse God and die? And even David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the man after God's own heart, had to once pray, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. We can lose our joy. So if you've lost your joy, you're not the first. And you won't be the last. But I can assure you that it is possible to rejoice evermore. Rejoicing doesn't indicate an absence of sorrow, but it's rather it's having a joy in the midst of sorrow sometimes. After the apostles were detained in Acts chapter 5 for just standing up and preaching the gospel, they were beaten by the local authorities. They were taken off to prison. And then we see this first. They departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. It won't always be easy to rejoice. I think that's why Paul, when he was writing to the Philippians, had to actually give the command twice to rejoice always. He was in prison, not for his sin, not for doing anything wrong, not for immorality, not for stealing, not for lying. He was in prison for being an outspoken man of God who preached the word of God. He was locked up. And he writes to the church in Philippi, and he says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. They needed to hear it twice. You're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Turn back to chapter 1. In the introduction to this letter, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 6. And ye became followers of us, and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. 
notice this, with joy of the Holy Ghost. I don't have to tell you that bad things are going to happen in life. In fact, go go back to chapter 5, just the verse prior to what we just read. We read it just a moment ago, chapter 5 and verse number 15. See that none render evil for evil unto any man. Now, why did Paul have to tell them not to, not to seek revenge to those who had mistreated them? Because people were mistreating them. And people would mistreat them. You'll be mistreated. You'll be lied about. Friends or those that you thought your friends will break your heart, stab you in the back, cut you deep. But still, we're to rejoice evermore. If you found that job that you love, rejoice evermore. If you're finally able to ship your kids off to school for nine months, rejoice evermore. If God's been especially real to you as you've been reading your your Bible lately, then rejoice evermore. But if you have a loved one that's making really poor choices, then you're still to rejoice evermore. If you have a sickness in your own body, an illness within you, or one that you love, you are to rejoice evermore. Evermore. If your health seems like it's on the constant decline, the command is for you. Rejoice evermore. If your best friends have turned their back on you, rejoice evermore. Now, with that as an introduction, I hope to encourage you in this matter of rejoicing evermore today. And I think it would be helpful, first of all, to look at some of the enemies, some of the thieves of our joy, some of the things that would try to steal the joy that we are all to have. I think it was Teddy Roosevelt who was first quoted as saying, comparison is a thief of joy. And he was right. Playing the comparison game will steal your joy. If you put your friend's Facebook and Instagram feed against your own life, it will steal your joy. I love this time of the year because everybody's going off to school and all the moms are posting pictures of their perfect children wearing their perfect outfits on the first day of school in their perfectly clean houses, and they're saying off to the first day of school. But if you compare that photo, what is probably their 50th photo that they decided to post to the world with what you're trying to do in your own house, you'll have reason to be discouraged. Comparison is a thief of joy. It's a thief of joy. Comparing your car to your sister's car, or your job to your friend's job, or your wife to your friend's wife. Comparison is a thief of joy. Even in the work of the Lord, if we're not careful, we can begin comparing our lives with the lives of other people. That's why the Apostle Paul said, we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. It's not wise to compare yourself with somebody else. Comparison is a thief of joy. Here's another one. Unmet expectations. No doubt there are people here who have discouraged seasons of discouragement as a result of unmet expectations. Maybe you thought you had a promotion coming. Maybe you were promised a raise and it didn't happen. Often, unmet expectations come along with relationships. You tied the knot, and he just wasn't all that you thought he was going to be, all that you assumed that he was going to be. 
And if we're not careful, we can allow this thief of joy to rob us of what doesn't belong to him. It's our joy. We can allow our minds to dwell rather than on what God has done for us and where he has allowed us to be. We can allow our minds to go where I should have been. This is where I could have been. This is where I deserve to be. Unmet expectations. And thirdly, this is probably the most common of all, is an improper response to life's problems. Problems in themselves can't steal our joy, but our own improper response to those problems can and will steal our joy. Family relationships sometimes turn south, and if we allow that to, it will steal our joy. Health problem, problems, sickness, aches and pains, illness of different kinds, cancer, they affect us more than just physically, don't they? They, they affect us emotionally spiritually even. They seek to steal our joy, but with a proper response to these things, even in the midst of sickness, we can keep our joy. Death is painful. They were experiencing death in Thessalonica. As much as anything, death has the potential to steal our joy, sometimes permanently. If asked, you might say that your financial situation has taken your joy out of your life. And financial challenges, just like the rest of these things, can take our joy if we improperly respond to them. These are thieves of our joy. Comparison, unmet expectations, problems that we do not properly respond with. But secondly, I want to look at what should be the object of our joy. You know, we often get joy from all the wrong places. If you were to take to the streets with a clipboard and a pen and just ask people, what is it that brings you joy? You'd get all kinds of answers. Some would say, my kids, my children just bring me joy. Some would say, my car, this new truck that I just got, when I get in it, just makes me happy. Some might say their job. I love my job. It's what keeps me going day after day. For some, it might be their marriage. For some, it might be a hobby, some sport that they like to play. For some, they might say, when I'm shopping, when I got the credit card out, that makes me happy. Everybody finds joy in different ways. If you were to go out, you get all kinds of answers, and none of these things are necessarily wrong, but none of them ought to be the object of our joy. We ought to enjoy our children, but our children should not be the source of our joy. It's a wonderful thing to have a job that you love, but that must not be the source of your joy. There's nothing wrong with having all kinds of stuff that God has allowed you to have, but none of those those things should never be the, the object of our joy, because none of them are guaranteed forever. And if they're not the object of our joy, then should one or all of those things be taken away from us, the one thing that will not be taken from us is our joy. We all wish that we could be assured that what we have today will be ours tomorrow and the next day and the next day, but we just don't have that guarantee. Whereas you know not what is on the morrow, right? For what is our life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Spurgeon said it well. There is a joy of harvest, but where shall we find it in winter? There is a joy of wealth, but where is this joy when riches take to themselves wings and fly away? There is a joy of health, but that is not with us evermore. 
for the evil days come and the years of weakness and sorrow. There is a joy of having your children around about you. Sweet are domestic joys, but these last not forever. At the house of the happiest knocks the hand of death. No, if your joys spring from earthly fountains, those fountains may be dried up and then your joys are gone. If the foundations of a man's joy be anywhere on earth, it will be shaken. So what is the object of our joy? What is the object of our rejoicing? The psalmist said it like this, Delight thyself also in the Lord. God must be the object of our rejoicing, the source. If the foundation of a man's joy be anywhere on earth, it will be shaken. And so we have to find our joy not on this earth, but on one who is not of this earth. On the only one who is never shaken. When we consider who God is and all that he's done for us, we can't help but rejoice. Every characteristic, in fact, of God is a cause for continual rejoicing when we think about who God is. We could spend an entire day talking about the character of God, and the more time we spend dwelling on it, the more we will rejoice naturally. But I just want to take a few minutes and just look at some of the characteristics of God that will cause us to rejoice, like his patience. Psalm 86, 15, But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth. Do you know what long-suffering means? It means he puts up with you. He puts up with me. He's patient with us. And I can tell you that putting up with me is not easy. If I were God, I could not put up with me the way that God puts up with me. But he's long-suffering, and I'm not always long-suffering. God is patient. And because God is patient evermore, he's always, always long-suffering. I can rejoice evermore. Because his patience is not ending with me, I can rejoice evermore. Not only his patience, but his forgiveness is cause for rejoicing. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If I do something to offend you, and I, and I go to you and apologize for that, I confess my sin and I should do that, I don't have any guarantee that you're going to forgive me. Right? But if... If I, confess, if, I'm, if I confess my sin to God, he's faithful and just to forgive my sin. And, and if, I, if I sin a hundred times and 99 times, I've confessed my sin and he's forgiven me, I can come to him with confidence, believing that he will forgive me yet again, because he promised that he would. He is faithful and just to forgive. We can rejoice evermore because of his mercy as well. Have you ever read Psalm 136? It's a, great, it's a great psalm. There are 26 verses in Psalm 126, 136 rather. And 26 different times in those 26 verses we find these words. His mercy endureth forever. His mercy endureth forever. His mercy endureth forever. 26 times. His mercy endureth forever. Forever. Every single verse in the chapter ends with the same phrase. His mercy endureth forever. He's so merciful to put up with you and with me. If you ever begin to lose your joy, just take some time to think about how holy God is, how unholy you are, and then the fact that God is still merciful to us. That ought to cause you to rejoice. And because his 
mercy endures forever, so our rejoicing ought to be evermore. The prophet Jeremiah said it like this, It is of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Which brings us to our next trait. His faithfulness. We sung about that a moment ago. He said, I am the Lord. I change not. People change. Culture changes. You change. But God never changes. I will never leave thee, he said, nor forsake thee. He is faithful. He is faithful. If he said he'll do it, He'll do it. I failed God a thousand times, but he's never failed me, not even one single time. Not even once. He's faithful. And he will never fail me either. I'll fail you, you'll fail me, but God never fails. He is faithful when I'm unfaithful. We can also rejoice because of his love. How much does God love us? I like Romans 5, 7. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how much he loved us. That when we were in the very depth of sin with no thought of him whatsoever, he in his holiness looked down on us and our sin and rebellion. Even before we ever knew him, he loved us. And he sent his son to die for us. That's how much he loves us. I am so glad that my father in heaven tells of his love in the book he has given. Wonderful things in the Bible I see, but this is the dearest, that Jesus loves me. We can rejoice in his love. We can rejoice in his sovereignty. He's all-powerful. There's nothing that he's not able to do. He rules over the universe, and he is able to take what may seem like impossible circumstances, the loss of a job, the death of a loved one, illness that seems beyond repair, and somehow he can work it out for good. That's why we love Romans eight twenty eight. We know that all things, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. There are a lot of things in your life that aren't good. No doubt. But God's working them all together. He's able to work all of them together for good. And for that, we can rejoice. We can rejoice in the promise of his return. That's the theme of this whole book, 1 Thessalonians, that we're to live in light of Christ's return, that this life is not all there is. There is more than this life. That's what 1 Thessalonians is all about. He's going to come to earth. Things are going to get much worse. But he's going to come to this earth and and remove us out of this earth before he pours his wrath out on the world and sin. And for that, we have reason to rejoice. These are things that can never be taken away. If you took your clipboard out and you asked everybody what brings you joy, likely the things that they would list would be things that They have no control over that could disappear tomorrow, but these are things that can never be taken away. We looked at some of the thieves of our joy. We saw the object of our joy. And thirdly, the result of our joy. What is the result of our rejoicing evermore? I want to give you five benefits Five benefits to rejoicing evermore. Number one, when we rejoice evermore, we do the will of God. 
There are many benefits to rejoicing, but this is a good starting point. We can know with confidence that we're doing God's will, that we're being obedient to the Lord when we rejoice. After all, 1 Thessalonians 5.16 is not a request. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Rejoice evermore. Just as we're commanded to pray without ceasing, just as we're commanded to give thanks in everything, just as we're uh, uh, commanded in previous verses to support the weak, to comfort the feeble-minded, to warn the unruly, not to seek revenge, to be patient with all men, just as much as those are commands, this is a command from God through the Apostle Paul to his churches to rejoice evermore. In fact, look in verse 18. 16, rejoice evermore. 17, pray without ceasing. 18, and everything, give thanks. Colon, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. This is the will of God. Not just that we give thanks, but also that we pray without ceasing. Also that we rejoice evermore. People often ask, they want to know about, how do you know the will of God? How can I know if I'm doing the will of God? Is this the will of God? And for those that are seeking, here's one way. You can know you're doing the will of God. Rejoice evermore. The result of rejoicing evermore is that we'll do the will of God. Here's the second benefit. A second benefit. Our health can be improved. We didn't read this, but I'm going to read this first to you, and you can mark it. If you're not familiar with it, you ought to write it down. Proverbs 17, 22. A merry heart doeth good like a medicine. Now, you probably know this, but the, the heart that the writer of Proverbs is speaking about is not the it's not just the, the, the beating uh, uh, organ in your body. When the Bible speaks of the heart, it's talking about the core of all that we are, our, our innermost part. And he says in, in Proverbs 7.22 that a happy heart, a merry heart, is like a good medicine. It's physically beneficial for us to have a merry heart. It's medicinal. If you get some free time this week, I would encourage you to do some research on some of the studies that have been done on happiness, on laughter, and health. It's very interesting. It's been said that laughter is the best medicine. Many, many, many studies have shown that happiness, laughter, a joyful spirit, lowers blood pressure, helps with heart disease, improves our immune system, and even leads to a longer life. It's been proven over and over and over again. And so if you're into natural healing methods, then I can can implore you to rejoice evermore. A merry heart doeth good like a medicine. But, the verse goes on, a broken spirit drieth up the bones. Just as much as a merry heart is, is beneficial to our physical well-being, a discouraged spirit that is broken has the opposite negative, has negative effects on our health. And no doubt this is a reason, one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons why often when somebody has a health issue, they soon after have another and another, and, and maybe they seem like they're all unrelated, this is not the only case for it. Understand, I'm not trying to say that, but, but the Bible is clear and, and, and science bears it out that a, a broken spirit, just as, a, just as a, a joyful, merry spirit has a way of improving our physical health, the opposite is true as well. A broken spirit dries up the bones. This is not to say 
that we can simply fake it till we make it and just put a smile on our face and all of our problems are going to go away. This is not a fake joy. This is a joy, an inner, inner, inner joy that comes from God. This is a joy that comes from the Holy Spirit filling his people. The, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. This is a joy that comes from him that has his, its object in God. It's good for us physically. We're looking at benefits to rejoicing evermore. We do the will of God. Our health may be improved. Number three, we testify to the world. Rejoicing evermore will encourage Christians and it will be a testimony to unbelievers as well. There's no greater testimony to the lost world when they see a Christian who, who because of everything that's going on in his or her life, ought to be in the depths of, the, of despair, and yet somehow, in the midst of all of it, they have joy. To, to, to believers, we look at that and we say, we marvel and we say, that's got to be God. To unbelievers, they think, wow, she has something that I don't have. Because if I was going through what she's going through, I can tell you I would not be responding how she is responding. It's a testimony to the world around us. Happiness is contagious. Did you know that that people want to be around happy people? People want to be around happy people. You know why? Because everybody wants to be happy. Everybody does. And so what better evangelistic tool than to just rejoice evermore? Despite our circumstances, rejoice evermore. Here are the benefits. We do the will of God. Our health is improved. We testify to the world. And before, we're formed. We're talking about when we rejoice evermore. We're formed into what God wants us to be. Things won't always go your way. They will. Ah, amazing, right? But according to James, that's all the more reason to rejoice. Here's what James said. James 1, 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Various diverse temptations. Temptations are not temptations to sin, but trials, difficulties, challenges, hurts, fears. My brethren, count it all joy when you find yourself in the midst of all different kinds of trouble. Knowing this. That the trying of your faith worketh patience. Patience. The word patience there literally means cheerful endurance. Knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work that she may be, or that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. He says, don't moan and groan when you, when you find yourself in all kinds of trouble. Rather, count it all joy. Rather, rejoice evermore. Because this is an opportunity to learn and to grow into what God wants you to be. To be perfect and to be entire, wanting nothing. We all want to reach completeness. What, we all want to reach the place. I want, we've all said it. Many of us have said it. I want to be all God wants us to be. And yet, quite often, we don't want to go through the school that he's designed for training his people. And often that's the, the school of hardship, testing, trials. When we go through this and we count it joy, count it all joy, brethren, when you fall into diverse temptations, when we count it joy, then we can become complete. We can become what God wants us to be. This is a benefit. This is a benefit. Number five, lastly, we glorify God. We glorify God when we rejoice evermore. In the book of Second 
Corinthians, Paul writes in chapter 12 about some of the things that he had been privileged to witness. Things out of this world. Things like none of us have ever seen or will ever seen. And this is what Paul said. Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. Because he knew what he had seen was abnormal. He knew he had the propensity to be exalted, to get a little prideful about what he had seen. So he said, lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelation, there was given unto me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Paul, understand, Paul hadn't done anything wrong. He wasn't a perfect man, but there's no sin here. He hadn't lied. He hadn't given up on God. He hadn't cursed God. He, he, he hadn't denied God. He was, he was literally visited by one of Satan's messengers, which he called a thorn in the flesh, not because of his own sin, but because he was being humbled by God to make sure that he didn't get too exalted. It was severe enough, this messenger of Satan, that Paul begged God on three different occasions to take it from him, but God didn't. Instead, the Lord said, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now, I want you to see Paul's response to this. Was he going to respond like Job's wife, who perhaps understandably said, Job, just curse God and die. You've lost everything. Would he respond like the Israelites did to Moses? Moses, why'd you bring us out here into the wilderness to kill us? This was Paul's response. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. My infirmities. I'll glory, gladly glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, listen to this, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. He gladly took pleasure in his problems, in his infirmities, and in his persecutions. He, he gladly took pleasure in all of the issues of life because when he did, Christ was exalted. God was exalted. Now when you go through great trials like the Apostle Paul did, God is not necessarily exalted. But when you go through them gladly, with joy, like Paul did, then God is exalted. There are some thieves of joy out there, for sure. Things that are trying to keep us from obeying the simple and yet challenging command to rejoice evermore. There are some other things, many things that would try to be the object of our joy. In fact, many things that we often make the object of our joy, but yet there's only one who is worthy to take that seat, and that's our Lord. But if we'll make him the object of our joy, if we will rejoice evermore, then there are great blessings. We do God's will. Our health is improved. We testify to the world around us. We're formed into what God wants us to be, and we glorify God. I want to conclude with 
a short passage from a sermon that was written well over 100 years ago that I think will be a blessing. Suppose some other kind of trial should come upon you. You're still to rejoice in the Lord always. The dearest friend is dead. Rejoice evermore. The sweet babe is sickening. The darling of your household will be taken away. Rejoice evermore. Trade is ebbing out and prosperity is disappearing from you. You may even be brought to poverty, but rejoice evermore. Your health is affected. Your lungs are weak. Your heart does not beat with regularity. Very soon you may be sick unto death, but rejoice evermore. Shortly you must put off this tabernacle altogether. Tokens warn you that you you must soon close your eyes in death, but rejoice evermore. There's no limit to this exhortation. It's always in season. Through fire, through water, through life, and through death, rejoice evermore. It's always good advice. If you ever need advice to give to somebody, they may not want to hear it, and sometimes we have to be cautious with our words, but rejoice evermore. Every circumstance, every circumstance we can rejoice. When we don't feel like it, rejoice evermore. When things are going well, rejoice evermore. When things fall apart, rejoice evermore more.